We are going to try to wrap up our kingdom series, though there's a whole lot more I could talk on for probably months. I feel, though, that... Um, I feel that um, there's been enough given that those who are hungry will search out more. And I don't want to make it sound like each week we need to, um, I don't want to sound like I'm harping on the necessity of kingdom reality. Because I think kingdom is something that is either in your heart or it's not. And the teaching is to help encourage those who don't have the heart for kingdom who think they do, understand they don't, so that way they get it. Does that make sense? Okay. Just because you're a Christian does not mean you have a heart for the kingdom. In fact, most Christians I know don't have a heart for the kingdom. It's evident in their life, in what they do, how they order their life, the lack of service they, they put out to Jesus, to his people. To each other. You always know a kingdom person because they're always about their father's business, and their father's business is always about somebody else's business other than their own. And I don't mean in a bad way, I mean in a good way. They are so hungry to serve other people because they have the heart of Abba, they have the heart of a giver. Those are kingdom people, people who do not make the entirety of their Christianity about themselves nor their current position or the things they want or their ministries. They are about the Father's business. People who just love Jesus and come once in a while, not, not just saying to church, but to fellowship, um, they haven't yet got the kingdom heart because other things are more important to them. And that's just the reality of it. Jesus is not yet enough. He's a close second. He's a good idea, but he's not everything. And that's sad. Because in order to be a true believer, Jesus must be everything. So I don't know where that puts people in the middle. Your religion is not going to satisfy God's judgment. Your years in service is not going to be in church or, or not going to be some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card you wave in the face of Father. Does it make sense? So the kingdom is very valuable, but I want to sum this up today in the ultimate end of the kingdom of God, where we're all headed. And it's not just heaven. The kingdom is about a continual celebration of one man and his bride for eternity. You understand this? Heaven is not for you. Heaven is God's. <laughs> the earth is ours. We messed it up. He came and saved us, and he's going to remove it so we can finally be what, where he is as he is. Does this make sense? We're going to live in God's domain for forever. His domain, where he lives, his house, his glory, his tabernacle, his kingdom, Everything revolves around him and his pleasure and his honor and his glory. Everything is about what God wants in the end. And it's a perpetual increase of his favor and glory so that he can get what he's finally, he, he finally is owed. This is where we're headed. And we're invited to that great marriage supper. 
You with me? How many of you guys understand that a marriage begins when the marriage ceremony happens? When the engagement happens, and then the ceremony happens, and then the actual consummation occurs, that's just the beginning. Heaven starts with a marriage. That's just the beginning. Heaven is not so that you can get there and finally be free from all the earth's trials and pressures and pains and flesh and garbage and, and get your reward. No, heaven is about Jesus finally getting his wife and starting his life. Does this make sense? Everything is about this consummation. The entirety of Christianity that we sum up here on this earth is about this marriage continuing for forever. And God showing himself, Jesus showing himself as the great husband to us, the bride. Now I'm not going to have time to get in to the semantics and the religious ideas and all the doctrines and all the issues of, of what people think and don't think and the disagreements of whether who is everybody the bride or not. I personally don't think so. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're the bride. The bride is a select group of people who have chosen to sanctify themselves and live for Jesus Christ, and everybody else is just invited to the wedding. If you haven't read your Bible and understood that there are different placements in heaven, then you need to go read your Bible and understand there's different placements in heaven. This idea that we're all going to be there and all be the same is false. And if you can show me in Scripture where I'm wrong, I'll repent. People usually bring up that one story where Jesus says gives them all the same reward. But every theologian and scholar I've ever read about all contextually agree, agree that that story, that parable is the only one about equality and it actually has to do with salvation, which is freely given to all men. Some get saved earlier and have to work longer. Some get saved at the last minute, but they all get the gift of salvation. But every other parable of the kingdom that Jesus talks about, he talks about people having more than other people, other people who didn't do anything. What they do have is taken away and given to those who still have. Are you with me? You better decide what's important in your life. If it's your children, God will honor that. But he will not bless it. Okay. So we have two sermons going on at once. Are you, are you following what I'm saying here this morning? Everything is going towards one main event. What you will be, who you will be, how you will be is determined by what you choose in your free will right now. So important, guys, not to get caught up in this life. I want you to turn to John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 11. I want you to understand the finality of what God decided to do and how it's seen in Scripture. And hopefully this will make you understand some things that are a little different from a different lens, a different viewpoint. We cannot look at Jesus' life when we study the scriptures of a random string of events that only have in common the salvation of mankind. Are you with me? 
<laughs> the scriptures are much deeper than that. There's a point much deeper than that. There's a trajectory much more uh, uh, inclusive in that that God has in his mind and in his heart. And if we miss that trajectory, we're going to be falling flat on our faces. What God intends is what is supposed to be our business. This make sense to you? I want to encourage you this morning because this is going to be a very, hopefully encouraging message, but a very serious one. I want you to understand that this is this John 17. How many of you guys understand this is this John 17 is the chapter where Jesus prays something that is absolutely magnificently powerful. If you don't know this chapter, you need to read this chapter over and over and over and over again until it gets in your guts because God gave us an insight into what Jesus is going to get. Somebody who just chalks this up as, well, Jesus was praying and then he died, misses the entire point. Everything that's prayed in this chapter will come to pass. I say it this way. Jesus always gets what he prays for. There are no unanswered prayers concerning anything that ever came out of his mouth. We're the ones that deal with unanswered prayers. He never has. Okay, are you with me? This is the launching pad to everything he's about to do. Everything before that was a climax up to this event, but this prayer changes everything. It's so much... It's so much revolution packed in one prayer that it just, it, it, the cosmos still can't contain it. It's bouncing off the walls in heaven, still being reverberated before the throne of God. And Abba is still saying in heaven, yes, my son. Yes, my son. It's interesting how he starts this in verse, in, in verse 11. It, it sounds almost contradictory. I am no longer in the world. That's where we need to start learning how to pray from. Most of our prayers are prayed from the context of still being in the world. And yet your reality maybe tells you that you are in the world because his physical body is still here, yet he understands, I'm no longer here. He gets it. We haven't got it yet. We still feel like this is our home. We're still trying to make a, fl a place, a farm, a lifestyle, a this, a that, and all those thises and thats will be taken away. Does this make sense to you? I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name. We still don't understand the power of the name of Jesus. Or the name of Father. Jesus elevates the name of God as the, as the only factor to hold us in what he's given. We've been given. Keep through your name those whom you've given me. What's that last part say? That maybe we be one as we are. That they may be one as we are. How one is, is Jesus with God? Yeah. 
Is there any separation? Is there any shadow? Any crack, crevice? Anything that needs to be caulked in? How one is he with his Father? And Jesus prays that what? We may be one as we are. That means Jesus is praying that you and I would have the same degree of unity with the Father that He has. The same. How unified is that? Is it, is it, is it as unified as you feel with God? You don't feel that unified? How many feel that unified with God? I'll tell you why you don't, because you still feel like you still are in the world. Next verse. Bear with me, guys. I'm going to try to get through all this. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. It's amazing to me. I can't even get into that. Whew, you're going to need to mark that down and go back and reread that. Those who you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. The scripture might be filled. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. We're not going to get into Christian depression. See, Jesus prays. This is why I don't believe in, in these medication-type issues. I just don't believe in them. And I have people come to me all the time. Well, you don't understand. Okay, for me to agree with you, I have to call God a liar. Period. And, and you're not going to get me to do that. I don't care how much, I don't care how much study you had. I, don't, I mean, Christian psychologists, I, I don't care. You're not smarter than God, and you're certainly not bigger than the prayer of his son. That they may have my joy fulfilled in them. His same joy. Wow. You see how much he's involving you when, whenever... You don't deserve to be involved. Next verse. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Next verse. We're going to go down to verse. Ooh. Let's jump down to verse 20. I'm not praying for these alone, but for also those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? So does Jesus get what he's, he prays for? Then how come he doesn't have it in us? Next verse. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. There's two scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus says that the world might know. And one of them is our love for one another, and the other one is our unity with God himself. Two things that the Christian church aren't usually known by, which is, makes sense why they don't know. Next one. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are. How many times does he pray? Is he asking this? And he's like, oh, the glory's God's. What's Jesus say?
I want you to understand how much you've been trained by the religious spirit. See, the religious spirit keeps God way out there and you down here and you trying to get his attention the entire time. You can't even, you can't even enjoy what God's doing through you because some religious devil is going to say, well, now, brother, it's just the Lord. Well, the Lord decided to be one with me. I didn't decide to be one with him. He decided to be one with me. So is it the Lord or is it me? It's both. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. In one place it says God wrote this, this, the, the tablets to Moses. In the other, another place it says Moses wrote them. Who wrote, which was true? Both. God wrote them through Moses. You with me? The glory which you've given me, I've given them. So that they may be one just as we are. It's wrong for us not to walk in the glory of God. That's what Jesus prayed for. The religious spirit's designed to keep everything away that Jesus prayed to get. Does that make sense to you? Now, we know the difference between some young, immature, arrogant baby Christian who thinks it's all about themselves versus the person who's walked long enough that absolutely doesn't have to be convinced. Yeah, this isn't my old man. This is everything that has to do with Jesus inside of me. However, the new man is just like him, and I am that, so therefore we are one in this. Does this make sense? Next verse. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one. There it is again. How important is it for Jesus to be one with you? That the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Do you understand that God loves you just like he loves Jesus? But you don't believe that. Why? Because you contextualize God's love with your sin. You're not viewing God's love through being one with Jesus. You're viewing God's love as if you're apart from him and it's trying to bring you into it. Does this make sense to you? He says it. And you have loved them as you've loved me. How many of you ever thought that God loves Jesus more than he loves you? It's because you were trained by a religious devil. Next verse. Listen to that, man. See, God actually desires things. You get that? What does God desire? That they also whom you gave me may be with me. That they may behold my glory which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Next verse. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these that have uh, known that you've sent me, last verse, 26. And I've declared unto them your name, I will declare it, that the love which you've loved me may be in them, and I in them. I in them. Do you see this? This is the prayer of Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this to give you context to the rest of where I'm going. This prayer 
was a prayer prayed by a groom for his wife. Think about it. What does Jesus say? When a man leaves his father and his mother and he goes to his, he becomes with her. One with her. Why does he pray over and over and over in these verses that we would be one? What he's saying is that we would finally be married. He's praying for his bride. Yet many people want nothing to do with the matrimony. They only want to be involved in the blessing and in the party of his presence. See, it's God's intention that we would no longer be separate. We create the separation. He even gave us a way out of sin through his blood. The Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive you. The problem is, is when we faithfully, we, we repent of our sin, we still don't believe that we're forgiven. We create the separation because the religious spirit again has gotten deep and wiggled into your brain that tells you, yes, Jesus' blood is enough theologically speaking, but you still have to pay for your crimes. You got to wallow in self-pity for a week to show the Lord and the angels that you're actually sorry. You got to waller into the spirit of the depression for a while to actually, you know, prove to the powers of darkness that you're that you're, you know, really repenting. I don't know very many people who can fall into sin and just pop right back up and keep on going. In fact, we won't let them as the church. I'm not talking about people who keep going back in habitual sin. That's a different sermon. You're going to read 1 John on that. You need to get born again if you're in habitual sin. 1 John says if you've committed sin over and 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 over again, you're of the devil. You've never been born again. You just experienced the goodness and the presence of God. You've mistaken that for salvation. That's a different sermon. But I have to put the little asterisk there. See, you got to understand that when, 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 when God, God wants us to know Him as He is, sin causes us to, to see Him differently. It creates a shadow. Adam, when he first fell away from God, he ran away from the presence of the Lord. Never in Adam's life was he ever scared of the voice of God until after he sinned. Never did he fear God's presence until after he sinned. I heard your voice. And I hid because I was afraid. Genesis chapter 3. How many times did he hear God's voice before that? And he did not go and hot. Why? Because his relationship now with God was contextual to his past failing. And many Christians, their relationship with God is still contextual to what they used to be. 
And if the devil can convince you that you are what you were, you'll never be what he died to make you. Because the power of your faith is what brings you to the reality of his redemption. You're saved by it, you're supposed to walk in it, and you're supposed to continue in it. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness in the earth? Will he find people who are faithful to the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection and the ascension of Messiah Jesus? Or will he find people who are enamored with the old life and still trying to bring God into it? Asking God to perform again what God already performed. You with me? So Jesus here prays this in the same arena in which Adam fell. He prayed from the shadows. And he asks God for redemption from what man lost. To be one again. This is why this prayer is so pivotal, because it's the launching pad of everything of the kingdom of God. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. All right. I want you to understand that God's, God's heart has always been to be one with his people. You know, for years, I would read the, the story of Moses, and, and I would read that part where he came to the burning bush, and, and, and God, he told him, take his shoes off. Because this place is holy. And I never got why God, I was like, why take your shoes off? Like, why not your shirt? Or, I don't know. Why shoes? Because God's heart was always to restore the peace of mankind. And our feet represent our peace. And shoes keep us disconnected from God, which is the earth. And so that... It, not God's the earth, but in the sense where God was at. He said, take your shoes off. Why? Because I want you to be one with me in this moment. There's something separating you from my holiness. There's something separating you from my goodness, and I want to remove it, and I want you to be on the holy ground on which I stand because that's my heart for you. Does this make sense to you? God saw the separation in Moses and wanted it removed. The thing that kept us separate from him. And we make it about sin. We think, well, his shoes must have been, you know, this and that. His walk with life was, was, was unholy and he had to be separated. And maybe so. But the thing was is that God was saying, look, I want you one with me. I want you connected to where I'm at. I want you grounded in my holiness. It's always been God's heart to be one with us. So why do you think he became a man? To be one with us. Do you realize the miracle of God becoming a man? Or has the story just grown cold to you? You need to stop some days and just ponder the basic principles of the gospel and realize how revelatory and miraculous and powerful they are. That he became like us. You think because he had to. No. Because he wanted to. That God wanted to be like you? You don't even want to be like you. <laughs> yeah, but he, he was like us without sin. 
just like you are now. Well, I've still got sin in my life. That's because you focus on it and you haven't used the blood. So you want to spend your entire Christian life being theological and try to, try to be holy without God. You want to try to use your Christianity without ever touching the blood. Okay. One more time, Chad. <laughs> we need the blood. It was shed for a reason. And it still flows from the throne of God vibrantly so we can bathe in it every day. Huh? So powerful. Go to Matthew chapter 19. It's going to seem like I'm making an immediate right turn out of context, but I trust you. Trust me, I'm not. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 3, I believe. You okay so far? The kingdom of God is about a marriage. We think just because we're Christians, we're all going to be there. Many are called. You know where that contextually comes from? The story where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who prepared a marriage for his son. The Pharisees, verse 3, came to Jesus, tempting him, saying to him, isn't it this amazing to me that God uses everything of darkness to expose his goal, his orientation, his heart, his nature, his preaching, his agenda. I mean, it's amazing to me. He's using the devil to bring forth his plan in the front of everybody. And yet when he does that in our life, we freak out instead of looking for the revelation. Nothing is wasted on your father. Nothing. Everything the evil one tries to do will be nothing more than a revealing of who he is in your life if you just look past what the enemy is trying to do. So many people get caught. Oh, the devil's attacking me. Oh, it's been a hard week. And you're going to miss the revelation. Because your eyes are on the hard week. Because you're still in the world. Listen to this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Think, 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 think of who they're talking to. I'm giving away the end of the sermon now so you can enjoy the rest of it. They're talking to the guy who came to marry the harlot. That was his wife. And these guys are asking, can we divorce ours for anything she does wrong? When the church of Jesus, the bride of Christ, at this point, both Jew and Gentile, was nothing but a harlot. And he came down to get her. And there they have the audacity to ask, can we divorce our wives because they burnt our toast? You chuckle, but that in some, some rabbinic teachings, that's, it got that silly. 
that men would put, they would divorce their wives because they burned their meal. In other words, does our relationship with our wife hinge upon her being good enough or not? Aren't you so glad our relationship with Jesus doesn't hinge on our being good enough? What do you pray? That they may be one. Does he consider the sin? These, all these people he's praying for are just about to leave him. Did you get that? After John 17, every one of them betrayed him. And even the women followed from afar. He prayed for people to be one with him. He knew we're going to walk away from him. We have a hard time forgiving people who stick around. And he answered them, Have you not read? He that made them from the beginning made them both male and female. And he said, For this cause a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, to be joined to his wife, to be joined to his bride. And the two will be one flesh. Do you understand that if, some, if two people become one flesh, that if you're ministering to the other person, you're also ministering to yourself? Do you realize that when Jesus ministers to you, if you're one with him, he's also ministering to who? And if you minister to him, you're also ministering to who? Because the two are no longer, they are. I actually had somebody get really upset at me because they said that, that I, could, I could minister to the Lord. Because they had a religious devil. But the problem is, is that you realize even that's an Old Testament understanding. If you go read Ezekiel 44, there was two types of priests, those that ministered to the people and those that ministered to the Lord. <laughs> so your religious spirit's still wrong because even under the old covenant and old order, you still had priests that ministered to the Lord. But now under the new covenant, we're one with him. And when we minister to him, we minister ourselves. When he ministers to us, he ministers to himself because the two are one. Some of y'all need to lose some religious demons and read your Bibles and figure out what God is after. And they said, well, why did Moses give us a commandment to, to write a bill of divorcement to put her away? And he said, Moses gave you this because your hearts were hard. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. In other words, Jesus is saying, from the beginning, I didn't make your heart hard. When I made you in the beginning, your heart wasn't hardened toward each other. And it wasn't hardened toward me, and mine wasn't hardened toward you. But because your heart grew hard, I let you have what you wanted. But it's not what I wanted, it's never what I wanted, and it's not what I'm going to get in the end. 
This is why marriage is so important on the earth. Because it is literally the only covenant that we can touch that's even close to the covenant God made with us. This is why it says God hates divorce. Why? Because when two people who are one are ripped apart, both parties suffer. And when God is joined to us and we rip ourselves away from him, we hurt him too. This is why in the Bible, in the New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles, there's more cause for a pastor to remove somebody from the church causing division than there is sin. Mark those among you that cause division, Titus, and remove them. Why? Because that which is one must not be ripped apart. These six things the Lord hates, seven is abomination to him. What is the seventh one? He that sows discord among the brethren. Those of you that gossip, you're literally involved in an abomination. And you can talk about how bad homosexuality is all you want, and I agree with you. However, what God calls an abomination is also gossip and discord. So you're right there with them. You with me? Because what God puts together... It's also for the body. With me? And Jesus says, whoever puts away his wife except for before an occasion shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her which is put away does commit adultery. That goes into another teaching. I just suggest to you don't ever get divorced. Don't ever get divorced. Is it lawful for us to remove our wife because she messes up? So that's what the religious spirit asks you all the time. You think that because you mess up that God is going to divorce you. You feel separated from him. You ever been there? In your walk with Jesus where you feel separated from him? Do you know he didn't do that? It's because of you not believing what he prayed for you. Well, I don't feel like it. Let me, let me say, my wife and I are one, period. There are days where we don't feel like it. But it doesn't change the fact that we're one. There are other days where it does feel like it. Who said feelings have anything to do with unity? Well, I don't think they like me in that church. Maybe because you haven't been likable. Everybody wants to sit and suck on self-pity and have somebody else come and rescue you out of that pit. Sometimes people are just like, man, I know they're in that. Maybe I should just leave them there. I don't know. 
I don't know what to do. Or especially, it's even worse whenever you have tried to save somebody from self-pity and you put your hand in the hole and they bite you. And the next time you see somebody in that hole, you're like, I ain't touching that. That hurt really bad. And then the person in the hole, they don't care about me. See, they're asking this question to the one who made unity. Can we divorce our, our women? And he's like, guys, I came down here to get my woman who was unfaithful. And I'm going to die for her, not blame her. You see this? Are you with me? So in verse 5, we see that Jesus left his father and his mother, which is indicative of the Holy Spirit, to what? To cleave to his, who is? John 17, that may be one as he is, right? And the two shall become one flesh, right? They are no longer two, verse 6, but one. See, he's championing for his bride. He's not focused on what she's done wrong. He wants her back, period. So grateful for him to want me after... Why? I have no idea. That's the age-old question we'll always be asking. Why? Somehow I know that when we see those eyes, we're going to understand but never be able to articulate it. Right? Go to Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start in verse 34. I'm going to read through this fairly quickly. Because I need to hurry up to get this finished up. Then, Cindy, you're going to miss my long sermons. It says, the king shall say to those, verse 34, Matthew 25, on the right hand, come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in, verse 36, naked I was, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me, verse 37. And then they're going to say, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you something that you needed to drink? And he says, uh, when did we see you as a stranger and took you in and, and naked and clothed you? Uh, well, when did we see you sick, verse 39, or in prison and when we came to you? And King will answer them, verse 40, I'm telling you the truth. If you've done it to the one of the least of these, you've done it to me. What does that have to do with my sermon? He prayed that we would be. How you treat each other is how you treat This is not about just ministry and going to the prisons and all that. It's included, but the indication is, is how you treat each other is how you treat me because I am now one with my people. Which is why I get very nervous when people start speaking against one another or even worse, speaking against authority and pastors. Because God isn't concerned about how wrong they are. He'll deal with that on the final day. If he was concerned about how wrong we all were, he would have never married you in the first place. 
but we're sitting down here trying to figure out where everybody's wrong and why I don't like that guy whenever you're really trying to treat Jesus the same way you're trying to treat somebody else because he's one with his people. Does this make sense? Why do you think we pass out water bottles? Because it says right here, what you've done to the most insignificant person you've done to me. You with me? So even if, you know, we, we have bad days, that doesn't mean we're not one with him. You guys, are, you guys understand your spouse comes in and with an attitude, male or female, doesn't matter. And you're like, ooh, you feel it, right? How many of you, how many of you feel it? Yeah, lots of amens now. You know why you feel it? Because you're one. And what one person does, the other one receives the consequence, whether good or bad. Let me say it this way. When you're sucking on self-pity, you're making Jesus enjoy it too. When you're enjoying your pornography, you're making God watch as well. When you're smoking your cigarettes and doing what you're doing and drinking your alcohol, you're forcing Jesus to participate with you. Because he prayed earnestly that you would be one with him. And you don't get to choose when you're separated. Period. You think you have rights in your physical body. <laughs> no. You were purchased by someone who is now one with you, and you only have the right to be and live as he is. Otherwise, don't take his name. That's what happens when we get married, right? The woman takes on the husband's name. What did he pray in John 17? Keep them through your name. Keep them in the identity and the character of God and the family that we're about to create. Does this make sense to you? Do you see what Jesus was ending for in the kingdom teachings? This is why the Bible tells men to take care of your wives because if you don't, your prayers won't be heard. Because to not take care of your wife is to not take care of yourself. This is why the Bible tells women to submit to their husbands. Why? Because when they're submitting to their husbands, they're submitting to also the father. Does this make sense to you? Have you ever read the scripture? It's very, it's very unpopular. In the New Testament, it says that even Sarah called Abraham Lord, whose daughters you are. Very unpopular. Because how you treat your husband is how you're treating Jesus. Ooh. 
You can say all you want and make all the man jokes that you want, but you know what? You say you love the ultimate man, but you're treating him the same way as you treat your husband. With me? Chad, I didn't realize you were going to be so hard on me today. I just stayed home and slept in. Do you understand this, that my wife doesn't ask for things we hold in common? We joke about it, but every time she makes a purchase, it sends a text to my phone on the credit card, and I'm like, whoa, I guess I just bought something from Amazon. Again. A few hours later, wow. UPS man's going to be busy. Did she ask me? Nope. Does she have to? Not really. Because we are. How come you're asking things from your father that you already hold in common? Most people pray for things they've already been given. Do you realize that God tells us, we, we ask God to bless other people, but God tells us to do it? We pray for God to bring peace to somebody else, but he says for us to do it? Do you realize how many kingdom things that we ask God to do when he actually, in the word of God, tells us to actually do it? Because again, the religious spirit has gotten into your head, and you think you have to pray down what you already possess. In order for that to be true, Jesus would have to come again. But he said in John 17 that I would be in them. Did he not? If he's in you, right? And Paul says you possess all things, even Christ. What else are you lacking? Only your faith to believe. I'm telling you, 99% of the people in this room your Christianity is stolen from you because of how you feel. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, But Saul, still burning with desire to put to death the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and made a request, verse 2 of Acts chapter 9, for the letters... From him to be sent to the synagogues of Damascus, so that there's any way of the, uh, people of the way there, men or women, he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. While he was journeying, he came near Damascus, and suddenly I saw a light from heaven shining around him. And down upon the earth he fell, and a voice said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, what Saul did to those people, he thought he was doing to those people. But when Jesus shows up, he said, you've done it to me. He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my believers? He said, why are you attacking me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Some of us need to ask that. Show me who you really are. Because in the incessant nature of all your being right and accusation of your brother and sister, congratulations, you've done nothing more than accuse God himself and yet come out feeling justified. Okay. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. So ought also men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because they're one. If you minister to your wife, you're ministering to yourself. For no man hated his own flesh. In other words, if you're not treating your wife right or your brother right, in a sense, you're hating your own But he nourishes his flesh. He cherishes it even as the Lord nourished and cherished the church. Why? Because he's one with her. Right? Verse 30, listen to this. We are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. This is the community part of it. This is why I do not respect, nor do I, I understand, but I don't respect people who refuse to be part of a local body. Because what they're saying is, is those people are wrong and the institution's wrong and all they're seeing is the sin and they're willing to divorce the church because of what's wrong when her Jesus, the Jesus they say they love, married that thing. You are not a prophet if you can come into a church and tell everybody what's wrong. The modern New Testament definition of, of, of prophecy is to encourage, to edify, and to build what? On the foundation of unity that Jesus himself laid by his own blood. And if you're not doing that, you're operating in divination and witchcraft. Using your intelligence and theology to tear apart the church of God. We are members of his body, of his bone, of his flesh. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they'll be one. Listen to this, verse 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Yes, Paul's teaching on physical marriage, but he says the point, that's not the point. I'm talking about Jesus and his bride. What does it say? That if a man ministers to his wife, right, he nourishes himself. If Jesus is ministering to you, he's feeding himself. If you're ministering to him, you're ministering to yourself. There is a unity there. There's only reason there's division is because you believe, we believe, they believe in the power of the sin to be greater than the power of the prayer of unity. But we need to remind ourselves that Jesus gets what he prays for. He will get it in someone. If not you, he'll get it in someone else. Does this make sense to you? To take care of himself is to take care of us. Verse 30 says that we are the connected tissue of God in the earth. You understand that in Jewish times, the engagement was the sealing of the deal. In Jewish terms, in Jewish times, in Jewish ways, when you got engaged, you were, you were already married. The engagement was the marriage. The celebration was the consummation and, and, the, and the, the finality. 
the beginning of the, of, of, the, of the issue. But once you were engaged, you were considered married. You understand that? Can I get a couple guys up here um, to pass some communion out, please, while I'm finishing this up? Just pass it around. If there's not enough, there's some more in the kitchen. I want everybody to have one of these because we're going to close here in a second. <clears throat> while they're passing that out, you can turn to Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to go to verse 2. Matthew 22, 2 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. We're in kingdom teaching right now. You remember this? We're in kingdom teaching. Who is the man that makes a marriage for his son? It's the father. I want you to pay attention to this. He sent forth his servants to call those that were bid to the wedding, that they, but they would not come. You see what's happening here. God sends his son to the earth, to the Jewish people, and he asks them to come, to be married to him. But they don't come. Why don't they come? He says, tell them, I've prepared the dinner, my ox and my fatling are killed, everything's ready, come to the marriage. Verse 5. This is the church today. This is the church of Jesus Christ today. We've got other things to do. We've got things that are more important than the kingdom. Now listen, I can't tell you because that's, that's cultish for me to tell you that you have to live for the kingdom. I can't. I can only work with those that I see that choose to live for the kingdom. Because if I have to tell you to work for the kingdom, then it's not in your heart. If I have to tell you that the kingdom of God is more important than your job, then you're not going to hear me. If I have to tell you that the kingdom of God is more important than your wife and your children, then you're not going to hear me. But if you know the kingdom of God and you know the king, you already know that he, that he and it is more important than everything and anything down here. Because you've read your Bible. And you know that when you get to heaven, you're not going to be married to anybody but Jesus. You're not going to have kids because they're God's sons and daughters. You're not going to need a job because everything is free. And many, many people will realize they've spent the entirety of their life trying to be comfortable in a life that was taken from them. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, one to his business, one to his merchandise. And the rest of them took the servants and treated them badly and killed some of them. When the king heard of this, he was angry and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up their city and he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which were bidden are not worthy. 
You realize this actually happened 70 years after he died? That God had his army. You know which army that was? The Roman army. So we think it's the angels. No. See, God uses the enemy to perform his purposes. God calls the Roman army his army. And they came in, burned up the city, and they suffered. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, how I long to gather you. Now we know that they'll be saved in the end, and God's going to turn his attention back to Jerusalem. And the time of Gentiles is full. But until then, now we're the people who are receiving the invitation. But honestly, we're doing the same thing they did. We're making light of the kingdom. And it says, go into the highways and byways. That was us. Because the goal is the marriage of the Son of God. You with me? Paul says in 1 Corinthians... Six fifteen. it says, don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Your body is the member of Christ. Don't you know your body is the member of Christ? Don't you know? He says, should I take the member of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Should I join them to something else? He says, God forbid. It's not talking about just prostitution and, and adultery. He's talking about when you take your life and you become one, you begin to pursue another lover, another king, another groom, something more important, your children, your, 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 whatever it might be. He says when you pursue that other lover, you're committing adultery because you're becoming one with something other than me. Go read the Proverbs about a jealous husband and what happens He's talking about himself. Spiritual harlotry, spiritual prostitution is unbelief, doubt, fear, drunkenness, the works of the flesh. The Bible says those people that do those things will not inherit the kingdom. What's the kingdom about? Those people that do those things will not inherit the marriage. The word inheritance implies family. Right? He says, don't you know in verse 16 that whoever's joined to a harlot is one body, for the two become one flesh. Whoever's joined to the Lord, verse 17, is one spirit. Have we not read our Bibles? Whoever's joined to the Lord is one spirit. He says, so free fornication. Don't you know your body, verse 19, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God. You are not your own. Some of you need to put that on your mirror, on the back of your car, on the front of your car, inside your car, on the front of your Bible, on your desk at work. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Verse 20. Because of this, glorify God in your body 
and in your spirit because they are owned by God. It's an American idea to think that you actually have rights. It's not a kingdom idea. You with me? Matthew 26, 27. Like I said earlier, in the Jewish culture, the moment the proposal happened and was accepted, and you were married. Some of you know this. Some of you know where we're going next. Some of you don't. We're going to go there anyway. Matthew 26, 27. This is the finality. And many, many, many cultures around the world, except ours, when a, woman, a man wants to pursue a woman, he goes to her with some sort of drink. Places in Mexico, they use frescas. <laughs> young boy wants to go marry a girl. He brings a case of fresca to the father's house. <laughs> it's a cheap date. but That's a dowry I can pay. But in many cultures, the, the, the pursuant would bring a glass of wine and give it to the woman. And it was up to her. And if she drank it, she accepted the marriage covenant. And the moment she drank that, she became legally married. And so when Jesus sat down, this wasn't just a meal they were having. This was his invitation that we read about. To come to the marriage, to be one with him, to fulfill his prayer that he prayed in John 17. And he says, take this cup. It's the cup of the blood of my new covenant. The cup, what do we call it? We call it a marriage. We call it a marriage covenant. Why? Because it cannot be broken. It should not be broken. Ever. This is why even heathen people who don't even believe in God will still use the phrase in their vows, till death do us part. They don't mean it at all because they've been raised in an American dating culture, which that culture basically teaches your children that if it doesn't work out, you can just find somebody else. And you wonder why your kids hop from person to person when they get older because you've taught them or you didn't teach them the value of staying. He took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and said, drink all of it. The idea is this, is I'm not holding anything back. I'm giving you all of myself. And I need you to partake of all of me. Not just part of me, not parts that you want. All of me. That's the desire in the heart of God. That you and I would partake of all of him, but so many people in this room have only partaken a part of him because it's convenient for you to do so. And there's parts of Jesus that you don't know. There's parts of Jesus I don't know. But he's inviting us to be one with him, to know him. And that's what communion really is. 
Communion is not some sort of ritual we do on Sundays or right once in a while. Communion is basically a renewal of our vow to God. He says, as often as you do this, because it's up to us how many times we want to remind ourselves that we're His. Those of you who may not know, but there's times where people, even in this church, have been healed just from taking communion. Why? Because it's a reminder to the body and to the soul and to the spirit realm that we are one with Christ and there's no sickness in Christ. And if we're one with Christ, there's no sickness in us. I know people who have been healed by taking communion two and three times a day of major illnesses and cancers because they take this idea and they say, God, I'm yours. And I'm one with you. And every day they remind him of his covenant and who they belong to. And many of them are healed. You understand the desire of God. This is not Christianity you're a part of. This is a marriage to Yahweh Elohim, God Almighty. The ancient of days. The one who called you and redeemed you with his own blood. I don't have time to go into it, but Paul talks about taking of the cup of devils. He says, you can't take of the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. What is he talking about? He's talking about this right here. He's saying, you can't make covenant with darkness and covenant with me at the same time. You can't be married to dark and be married to light. So much marriage strong through the scriptures and teaching. About marriage, about marriage, so much about marriage. Why do you think he created Eve? Because he looked at Jesus and said, you don't have a bride. Just the way he doesn't have a bride. But I'm going to prepare for you a bride, my son. And he sent out the call to your heart and my heart, and many of us are still running away from it. Because we're satisfied with Christianity. That fits our American lifestyle. I know that Jesus wants his bride to bear the same scars that he bears. Because we were one. Do you realize he prayed John 17 before the cross? Yes? So if he prayed that we would be one with him before the cross, then who was with him on the cross? <laughs> we were. And so in my heart, my spirit, I bear the same wounds as my Savior. Because he put me there too. Paul says, don't you know that if you were crucified with him, you were raised with him? Why? Because you're one with him. Ephesians 2, 6, and he's raised us up together and has made us sit in heavenly places with Christ. Why? Because we're one. But you know what the church is doing? She's using that oneness that she has with Jesus 
to make Jesus involve himself and be involved with things that he would never be involved with. Unbelief and gossip and slander, selfishness, self-pity, running from God, making excuses, justifying and making light of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want everybody to stand. You hold in your hand something that's either going to mean something to you or it's just going to be a ritual. Because what it really is, is you're reminding yourself who owns you and what your life really is about. And when Jesus says you do this as much as you want, remember me. Remember my covenant with you. Remember you're my wife. You're my spouse. You're my bride. You're my love. You're my everything. I want to spend eternity with you. And all the things that you've chalked up as being important or not, and all the situations you're trying to make bigger than me or not, and all the things you want me to do are never going to be as more important as I am. I am your resurrection and I am your life. And I just want you before the Lord, wherever you're at right now, just to take a moment. I'm not going to lead you in this. You just take a moment and you decide if you want to renew your covenant with Jesus. That's between you and him. Father, those of, of, in the room that have said yes to you, asking for grace for them, your kingdom would be more important than everything else in their life. And they would realize that we're all heading to this one moment in time where you will finally get what you desire. You will finally have your bride. And the cross will finally be complete. 
So help us, Father. Let us be wise. Let us be virgins. Set aside for you, your purposes, your kingdom. We love you. We thank you for the invitation. Help us not make light of it. Help us to honor your son as we are one with him. We ask this in Jesus' name, and I bless your people. Amen.